Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with Jesse Felder. So Jesse needs no introduction, but in case you don't know who he is, he's been managing money for over 20 years. He began his professional career at Bear Stearns & Co. and later co-founded a multi-billion dollar hedge fund headquartered in Santa Monica, California. Today he works with a select group of clients at Felder & Company LLC in Bend, Oregon and blogs at thefelderreport.com. If you haven't checked out thefelderreport.com, highly recommend it. He's got some great stuff there, great blog. In this episode, we cover all things macro investing, including outlook for U.S. and emerging market equities, the U.S. dollar, inflation, gold, commodities, and we go into great detail on the forces at work driving each of these. Jesse's blog and Twitter are a treasure trove of great information on financial markets, and you won't want to miss details on how he consumes such a breadth of information about markets and the Twitter accounts that he loves. Before you listen, please don't forget to like or subscribe to the podcast anywhere where you digest these. And even better would be to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This really helps with the rankings. There is loads of value in this episode. Please enjoy this conversation with Jesse Felder. Jesse, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. A lot of my listeners know who you are and your background, for, but for those that actually don't know, can you give a brief background, who you are? Yeah, sure. I, I started in the kind of investment game right out of college. I actually didn't study finance. I was always interested in it though, but I, I studied English and, and when I got out of school, I knew I wanted to be in a career in finance and it actually worked out well because I think a lot of the people I admire most, you know, believe that a lot of what they teach you in, in school is kind of can hinder you more than help you in terms of the market. So but I went to work straight away for Bear Stearns in LA, in Century City actually. They sent me back to their New York office to guess tour the tour the you know floor of the New York Stock Exchange with their head trader. At the time, Bear was doing more business on the New York Stock Exchange than anybody else. So that was a chronic a great education. I worked at Bear for for a little while, just kind of in the private client side of things. I found a guy there who was essentially running kind of a hedge fund inside Bear, and we ended up leaving to start our own our own fund and and firm, and that would have been late '97. And, you know, from late 97 until March of 2000, really the, the run up, the, the final run of the, the dot com mania through 99 and early 2000, uh, I was the head trader of this hedge fund firm and really had a front row seat to, to that. And I, I quit. I quit the firm in March of 2000, literally right at the top. I wasn't trying to time it or anything, but I had just, I, you know, there was a, for a number of reasons, it was a good time for me to leave. And I, I moved to Bend, Oregon and essentially been just managing my own money and writing about the markets ever since. What a time to leave March, 2000. Couldn't have top ticked it any, any better than that probably. Right. Well, I think, you know, so many things go that way. There was so much, you know, emotion and, and, you know, part of our, our discipline, we were supposed to have a, a value mandate. And so my partner at the time, who was the head portfolio manager, was, you know, wanting to abandon all of these value stocks and dive into the, you know, all the, you know, most popular momentum names. And it kind of you know, came to a head right around that, you know, naturally during that March of 2000 peak when, you know, there were so many terrific opportunities in value and we were moving away from those and into these things that were just about to implode. And so, you know, our relationship was kind of, you know, uh, just you know, imploding at the same time. So. Absolutely. So I actually wanted to start with something a little bit different, but I think this is yeah. a perfect segue. Something you shared today on your Twitter, which is a fantastic resource for any of my listeners, by the way. And I definitely want to get into that. But the FT article about the U.S. stock market bubble and the the comparison to uh, Japan in the 1980s. And one quote from it was that 530 out of America's 8,500 8, 8, listed companies trade at more than 10 times sales. 
And this reminded me of one of your articles uh, on your blog as well, the what were we thinking, what part two, deuce, that I, I, I actually will link as well. But I, I mean, at 10 times earnings, 10 times sales, rather, this these are just bonkers valuations. So let's let's just jump right into it with your your current view of the stock market. This is recording on September 8th. So some of the mania from last week has kind of come back a little bit, but they're still just so stretched. So let's let's dive right into it. U.S. stock market. Let's. What are your thoughts here? Well, it absolutely is another speculative mania, similar to that Japanese you know bubble that peaked in the late '80s, early 1990, and to the dot com mania. You know, I, I probably should qualify this by saying that you know it's through just anecdotal evidence i've noticed that depending on when you come into you know wall street as a career that the first couple of years are very make a huge imprint on your on the rest of your career and so for me coming into the middle of the dot com mania watching this you know just huge pyramid scheme is what it you know felt like to me uh, at the time that that's colored me towards you know being more you know, wary of those types of things. And so I, I, but I do think this is very similar in the respect that, yeah, you can look at valuations. I was just right before we started recording, looking at uh, one, another valuation measure I use. And that's basically just taking the three biggest stocks in the market, Amazon, Microsoft, Apple, and you look at the price to free cash flow. And that the late, I think they peaked valuation wise in December of 99 at about 45 times free cash flow. Just that I'm talking about aggregate free cash flow. So take the, the three market caps, put them together, take all the cash flow those three companies create and just you know create a ratio. And so it's on September 1, they hit 48 times free cash flow. So it was even they even got more expensive relative to free cash flow than they did at the peak of the dot-com mania. I mean that was with you know Amazon you know generating you know no free cash flow and what have you back then. So yeah, but on a price to sales, I think is another interesting one um, to look at because you look at uh, Tesla to me, that, that quote, that what were you thinking comes from Scott McNeely, uh, who was the CEO of Sun Microsystems back in, in the day. His stock went from five, six bucks a share to 65 bucks a share, like in several months time, very similar to Tesla up tenfold. And it traded over 10 times sales for basically, uh, you know, a networking computer, you know, server type company hardware maker. And so you can never really have amazing margins to support that type of evaluation when, when you're a hardware company. But I think Tesla recently got up almost to 20 times sales. I haven't, I haven't looked at it, but I, it was 14, 15, 16, 17 times for another company that will never have the margins to support something like that. And it doesn't have the sales growth either. I mean, it, Tesla's sales growth is flat to negative right now. So the valuation is absolutely insane, even more insane than Sun Microsystems was, you know, back at the peak of the mania. And I do think Tesla will prove to be that kind of, you know, iconic, you know, poster boy for the, yeah. the, the bubble that we're watching right now. In that article, I mean, Scott McNeely's quote is just, for the listeners that perhaps don't understand what 10 times revenue means, is that if they pay out 100% of their revenue for 10 straight years, so they have zero expenses, zero R&D, all of this, and 100% of their revenue is paid back, it will take 10 years. So yeah. for Tesla to be above that, I mean, this you're pricing in just crazy, crazy growth in, into these numbers, right? Yeah, and it's not just Tesla. I think this is a really important point that I think a lot of, you know, Tesla fans would say, okay, well, you know, this is not just 10 years ago. We were pricing in 20, 30 years worth of growth. Right. And the earnings might not even materialize in the next 10 years. They'd maybe point to Amazon. I'd look at, you know, you paid 10, 15 times sales for Amazon in 2000. You still have done pretty well, you know, and owning, even if you bought the stock at the peak back then. You know, so they're saying over, you know, 20 year period, you could have the growth that, you know, comes into justify that. But I think when you're doing, they're doing this with Apple, right? I mean, when you're willing to, I mean, salesforce.com is another great example, trades 200 times free cash flow, oh right? Gosh. It's one half of 1% free cash flow yield. And so when people are saying, okay, well, that's fine because interest rates are zero and because Salesforce is going to grow like crazy for 20 or 30 years, the further out you project that, the, 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 the more room for error you, you are allowing, or actually less room for error you're allowing in your analysis, because 
if interest rates don't stay zero for the next 20, 30 years, right? If interest rates go back up to five, 6%, all of a sudden your discount rate and that discounted cash flow model has to go up and the valuation comes way down. So you're making that bet that interest rates are gonna stay zero for 20 years or 30 years. You're also betting on them being able to grow earnings or grow sales or whatever it is at a five, six, seven, 10% or 10 or 20 or 30 years, if that growth rate, growth rate, just assume growth earnings, you know, do 5% a year for 20 years or 30 years. If that growth rate ends up being 3% instead of five, right. your valuation's cut in half. And so that's, there's so much duration risk, I think in equities right now, you typically think of duration risk in bonds. Like, okay, I'm gonna buy a 30 year bond, I'm gonna go way out on the, on the curve. And if interest rates do, you know, a little bit of movement, it makes a huge difference in the price today. That's the same thing when you're putting, when you're making a 30-year bet on a stock. That what interest rates do and what the growth of that company do has a massive change in, in the valuation you, you know, you come up with today. So, I mean, I, I just was, you know, writing about this recently. If you use a, you know, 5% discount rate and a sum of 5% growth rate, you can get, you know, you can come up with a, a reason to spend, you know, pay a hundred times earnings for a stock. But if that, you know, discount rate goes up 2% and the growth rate comes down to, right. you're only looking at a 10 times multiple instead of a hundred times. Literally the valuation came down 90% by those small changes in the adjustments that you're making. So I think today investors are taking this duration risk in the equity market, more duration risk than they've ever taken before and counting on this earnings growth to sustain for a long period of time and counting on interest rates to stay very low for a long period of time. Yeah. And I mean, this time it's different, right? There's a number of factors like I don't see rates ever coming up or just how that's even possible. And we'll dive into that in more detail. But you know, you've written as well about the passive investing bubble and this, these sorts of things as it's, it's just this self-fulfilling prophecy because they're market cap weighted and money's flowing in. So it's going to these bigger companies. I mean, what are your thoughts of this time it's different with these different factors that are flowing into it? And how do you think through how these are impacting stock market valuations? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, this time it's different is, you know, uh, <laughs> classic, right? John Templeton, you know, famously said four more most dangerous words in finance this time is different. And, you know, people have been saying that for five, six years, and there hasn't been, you know, any consequences for that, that, you know, the, people believe this time is different for so many reasons. They believe that, you know, valuations don't matter anymore. You hear you know, a lot of people say price to book matter doesn't matter anymore as a valuation tool because, so much of the value is in you know intangibles now and there, i mean you can come up with so many different um this time is different arguments but you know at, at the end of the day this time is is much more similar to it was in these past manias than it was you know to to uh, and to think that this is the beginning of a new bull market i think is is absolute you know insanity because there's so many parallels to to past market peaks and and you're right those to me i see two two manias at work presently one is the passive mania which has been going on like i said for at least five six seven years now which people believe that the price you pay does not determine your rate of return any longer which is you know the the, the cornerstone of buffett's success is the price you pay determines your rate of return pay a cheap price get a high rate of return pay an expensive price, get a low rate of return. Passive investors think I can just come in and buy, pay any price. I can pay the highest price in history and I still deserve a historical rate of return. I still deserve an eight to 10% rate of return, which is, you know, that, that in itself is manic thinking. It, well, the thought there is that on, on a long enough time frame, like I'm putting this money in for 30 plus years, the historical average is eight years. So over this time period, like it's, it's a blip on the radar, right? Is, is that kind of the main yeah, argument there? Yeah. And I think that, that, that goes with another, another, you know, George Soros said, you know, every bubble has, you know, these, these mistaken beliefs that support it. And, and one is that, that the price you pay does not determine your rate of return. Another one is that no matter, you know, the price I pay, as long as I hold on long enough, I'll always be made whole. That, you know, the market always, you know, has never had a 10 year period where you've lost money or a 20 year period where you've lost money. You know, if, as long as I have a long enough time frame, I'll be made whole. 
And you know, that's another mistaken belief. I, I think that if you look back at the history of the US stock market, especially in real terms, I mean, if you bought in the late 60s, you know, you had 30 plus years of, of losing money in terms of after inflation. But if you bought at the 1929 peak, you know, there was 20 plus years where you were under underwater on that investment. And I think the point that I would make in relation to that is that today valuations are higher than they were at the 29 peak. So it's certainly possible that we have a 20 year period where if you buy stocks today, 20 years from now, you could still be underwater. And Japanese investors would be the first ones to say, yeah, look back at 1990. Um, we're still, you know, 30% below that peak from 30 years ago. So, you know, that, that's another mistaken belief, but you know, those are the ones that I think are driving the, this passive bubble. It's just put money in stocks no matter what. But there's also, you know, a, a retail classic speculative mania going on right now in the options market that, you know, we can talk about if you, if you want. Well, the option market alone, I mean, these call options, massive quantity of call options. The key takeaway there is that it's displaying a lot of these peak mania characteristics. So it's fair to say that you're not that bullish near term or longer term on the US stock market as a whole, probably, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are there pockets of value? I mean, maybe eventually we'll go back to value investing one day or uh, emerging markets or anything within these markets that actually, you know, might make sense on a longer term horizon. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think emerging is is attractive relative to you know more de, you know developed markets. Emerging is is cheap, you know, on its surface, and it's also cheap from a currency standpoint too. I think the dollar's overvalued, and so yeah. But in terms of the U.S. stock market, I do think this is probably one of the most dangerous times to be an equity investor in history, short term and long term. I, I think there's a very good possibility of another. You know, lost decade where you know there is no money made over the next ten years, and there's a good chance actually, investors ten years from now will look at you know a loss even after dividends are included over over a ten year period from today's prices. So I, I think it's you know extraordinarily important to understand that that risk is there in the market. You know, for another, the possibility of a 50, 60, 70% decline in equities is as great as it's ever been. And so, you know, I think for a lot of investors to think back, okay, that 2008 experience, that 2000 to 2002 experience, those are what typically happen as a result of a bursting bubble. And I think we are in the, in the process of, you know, a, a large topping pattern of bursting bubble, whatever you want to call it. And, and the only reason that it hasn't burst as part of, you know, the COVID induced recession, global recession, is that we have seen an unprecedented amount of money come into the market in the form of stock options that has really kind of created this final blow off in the NASDAQ. Yeah, I completely agree. And this, this whole, you know, Tina, there is no other alternative is, is very dangerous thinking. So you touched on it briefly, bearish on the dollar, a number of reasons. Can you touch on, on why exactly you're bearish and uh, what those reasons are? Yeah, sure. There's, you know, the, the two longer term drivers that I look at for the dollar are one, it's valuation relative to its peers. You can look at, you know, purchasing power parity or any type of the Big Mac index is a good, you know, shorthand for, you know, what does it cost to, you know, produce a Big Mac in the United States versus other other places. And you can do that. You know, basically, that's a shorthand for purchasing power parity. And that's just the valuation of the dollar versus other currencies. Dollars overvalued, you know, versus you know, almost every other currency on the planet. And the, the, the more important one for me, fundamental driver for the dollar is probably the fiscal situation. If you look at the, the deficit to GDP, the dollar tracks that pretty closely over long periods of time. You'll get a 20, 30, 40 year chart and you'll see that, you know, when the, the deficit is widening and that's usually bearish for the dollar. Now the deficit started widening when the dot-com mania burst, um, you know, tax revenue went down 2001 to the deficit started widening for two years before the dollar really rolled over hard in 2003, 4, 5. And so sometimes it does work with a delay, but 
when Trump you know, initiated these corporate tax cuts and created a trillion dollar deficit during an economic expansion for the first time since the, the 1960s, you know, when Nixon was trying to pay for the Vietnam War, you know, that to me was you know, a major red flag in 20, and then we saw you know, the dollar roll over pretty hard in, in I think it was 16, 17. And then it's rallied you know, since, but <clears throat> the, the, the deficit has since widened you know, much more dramatically as a result of you know, falling revenues now. Uh, well, it was falling revenues from the tax cut, but you know, now it's falling revenues plus massive fiscal stimulus, two trillion in spending, you know, three trillion in spending, whatever the numbers are, creating a massive four trillion dollar you know, deficit. So that, that historically has made people wary of owning, owning dollars and say, especially when the dollar is overvalued, those two dynamics together, the, the deteriorating fundamentals paired with the dollar being overvalued, to me point to another dollar, major uh, bear market for the dollar over the next few years. Yeah, and I completely agree. I mean, but the, these numbers, they're just numbers on paper, right? Things that we can't even fathom, a couple trillion stimulus pumped in. And it's just, it is what it is. But I mean, the the more I look, so it's it's always a trade-off. If you're you're either in dollars or you're in another currency or gold or, or, or some other placement, I suppose. But the fiscal situation is pretty ugly in most other countries. I mean, so looking at the dollar and the fiat alternatives, I mean, is there any kind of shining light that you're seeing or, or it's just a, kind of the death of fiat as well as the dollar uh, being overvalued? Well, I think, you know, you know, namely Euro and Yen, that's not to say that I want to own those currencies, but it's also one reason why probably emerging market equities are, you know, attractive, not just because, you know, like I mentioned before, they're, they're cheap, you know, relative to their own history. They're, the currencies are also cheap, so a dollar a dollar bear market is usually good for, you know, those types of investments, you know, that are priced in, in other currencies. So, so I, I do think you know emerging could benefit from from a dollar bear market like that. But typically, you know, if I if I'm trying to hedge my my dollar exposure, I'm going to want to own precious metals. I think you look at that that dollar bear market that I was referring to that went from essentially from 2002, three until 2009, 10. And, you know, that was a wonderful period to own gold. And so I do think, you know, I've been bullish on gold since late 2015, really, when, when the Wall Street Journal called it a pet rock and it was, it was the most hated asset class on the planet. It's had a really good run since then. And I'm, I'm not as short-term bullish on, on gold as I, as I have been for that reason. I do think it's probably gotten a little bit overheated in, in the short run. But longer term, if you're looking to you know, protect yourself uh, from a dollar bear market, I think you, you have to have some exposure to precious metals, and namely gold. Yeah. And I, I've read that gold exposure in portfolios is at all-time lows, whether this is a byproduct of all-time high equity valuations, probably. But you know, I think there's certainly some upside. Completely agree. Near term, I mean, we've had a fantastical run up this year. But I think longer term with the fiscal situation and the dollar situation, I think it makes a lot of sense to add to our portfolio. In terms of, I mean, dollar rates low forever, yield cur- curve control, what are your kind of thoughts on where this goes from here? Well, it's, it's really interesting. I think the Fed is, is kind of, you know, boxed in to, boxed in is, is maybe not the term. I, you know, the term is fiscal dominance. It's the Fed is being forced to monetize the debt now, you know, and I think that's a very important distinction that quantitative easing in the past was kind of a, a discretionary policy. The Fed said, we want to try and boost the economy. We're going to do this by, you know, buying, um, you know, treasuries. And that will hold interest rates, not just down on the front end, but we're going to hold interest rates down across the curve, make it more attractive to borrow and spend. But also it's going to force investors out the risk curve that if they can't make money in owning long-term treasuries, we're going to have to go buy corporate bonds. We're going to have to go buy stocks. So this was a, a you know a conscious policy by Ben Bernanke to try and create a wealth effect, and also try and and you know boost the economy by lowering interest rates across the curve. The buying of of bonds today by the Fed is not so much 
a, quanti a, a policy that's in line with that quantitative easing where they're trying to create a wealth effect or anything. I think when the repo fiasco happened, you know, almost a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, that to me was a sign there wasn't enough natural demand in the market for treasury bills. So it comes back to this deficit. We have this trillion dollar deficit. Treasury has to issue a bunch, a trillion in new debt to, to fund it. And if there aren't enough buyers, interest rates go way up. So what happened was a bunch of hedge funds said, we're going to borrow money in the repo market. And we're going to leverage maybe 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 to one. And we're going to buy up these treasury bills because we can make, you know, if we leverage it up, we'll make money on the spread. But without these hedge funds buying tens of billions of dollars of treasury bills, there probably wasn't enough natural demand to soak up all of that new debt issuance and interest rates would have gone up. So when we had these problems in repo and these threatened to blow up all these hedge funds and create potentially another financial crisis, the Fed had to come in and say, we're going to fix repo. We're going to start buying treasury bills again. We're going to start funding the, the government directly. To me, that was a change of, we're not doing this for quantitative easing. We're doing this because there's not enough natural demand for all of this new debt issuance. And to me, that is a, that's a huge change is this situation of fiscal dominance where the Fed is now forced to monetize the debt to prevent interest rates from going higher is the type of situation you get when people start to lose faith in the currency. So people will start saying, oh my gosh, they're gonna, you know, they have to raise four trillion additional and the Fed's gonna monetize it all. That's hugely inflationary. And if we own treasuries and we're gonna get paid a half, you know, 50 basis points on owning a 10 year treasury note, and you're gonna, you're basically now telling us you're gonna try and create inflation over 2% and you're gonna you know, monetize the debt in order to do that. This is, this is how you get a bear market like I'm talking about where people just say, okay, there's no point in owning 10 year treasury notes getting paid 50 basis points and they're trying to create two, three, 4% inflation and they're gonna monetize the debt in order to do it. And so that's when you get people liquidating and the dollar goes down and you can, you can create an inflationary problem. So I think that this is why I've said the dollar is probably the only thing that has the ability to take the printing press away from the Fed. Because if the Fed decides we're going to monetize $4 trillion, you know, we're going to just, however much the government does, we're going to monetize it. The dollar will tank and the Fed will be forced to say, okay, this is a sign inflation's coming. We, we can either continue doing this or we have to, we have to change somehow. And it's, it's, a, it's a very dangerous, I think, and scary situation that could be could be coming because if the fed doesn't monetize it interest rates go way up and and that maybe means that the, the treasury can't even service its debt without issuing new new debt and if they if they you know do mon continue to monetize it the dollar could like i said go down 30 40 percent in value and that could create a real surge in inflation and so it's it's a very very interesting time you know i i, I remind people that May you live in interesting times as a Chinese curse, not a blessing. <laughs> so that's, we, we are, you know, living in interesting times right now. I like it. It certainly is a curse, though. And this fiscal do dominance in this corner that the U.S. dollar and Fed and economy has been backed into, you talk about losing faith in the treasuries and, and, and these sorts of things and the dollar going down by 30, 40%, gold will go down as well. This is, a, this is almost an apocalyptic sort of scenario, right? So, I mean, how does a, an investor think through this? Obviously bullish on gold and precious metals, but like that almost sounds like a guns and ammo and bunker in the back sort of situation. So how, how do you think through this? It's, it's not nearly as uh, apocalyptic as, uh, as I'm making it sound, probably. The dollar's had bear markets of 30 40% in the past, and it's not even lost its reserve currency status. So you can have a 30 40% decline in the dollar without, you know, having, you know, these end of the world, you know, types of scenarios. And, and this, this happens, right? I mean, part of this is also, you know, goes along with the, you know, global hegemon, through history, right? We saw the British Empire and the value of the, the pound, you know, decline dramatically after it became so indebted through World War II and lost its its status. Uh, you know, I think this is also why that, you know, there's all this strife with China because China is in a you know better place financially than we are. They also have 
you're growing a lot faster and, and that can, you know, that growth, economic growth can solve a lot of problems over time. You know, if we had that type of, type of growth, we wouldn't need to create inflation to get out from under the debt that we've created. But I think the Fed realizes there's no way we're going to grow 6% a year like China. We'd be lucky to grow 2 3% a year over the next, you know, 10, 20 years. And so it's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to grow our way out of this debt mess that we've created. So inflating it away is really the only way, the only solution. So I, I, I don't see it as something that's super apocalyptic or anything like that. I, I just think it's it's uh, you know something that's happened throughout history to, to major major countries, and I think the biggest thing that I that I look at in terms of this is the Fed's either going to have to allow for inflation to really take off, like much more than they're talking about, or they're going to have to let the stock market go and and rein in inflation. Not going to be able to have their cake and eat it too. So you either let inflation, you know, run crazy because you're, you know, printing, you know, printing money to monetize the debt and trying to support stock market, corporate bond market and the treasury market all at once. And inflation goes nuts as a result. Or you say we can't let inflation go nuts. We have to rein in some of this money, you know, the money printing, the monetizing the debt. And, uh, you know, if you do that, then that removes that floor that's under asset prices. And so, you know, I think it's, it's a question of one or which one of those two scenarios. And I do think it's probably likely that they get both, that I think that we, we, we could see a stagflationary bust in the, in the stock market where we get weak growth, rising in inflationary pressures, and the stock market rolling over all kind of at the same time. And, and, and that's just something that could, you know, that's kind of a third possibility, I guess. And I think it's probably the most likely. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, how important and prevalent this wealth effect is in the stock market going up and people's portfolios going up. I just, I find it really hard to believe that they just pull, pull the plug on the stock market and let it kind of drift down to valuations that make sense. So this is kind of my thought of always having stock market exposure, no matter how bearish and how much I want to be 50-50 gold and dollars, right? Well, I would just say to, to your point that it's, it's really tough. It's all of this new debt makes it very tough for the, the Fed to actually prop up the stock market. So people point to liquidity. And all this Fed liquidity is what's propping up the stock market. But like Stan Druckenmiller you know, talked about back in, I think it was March or April, it's not just Fed liquidity you have to look at, it's net liquidity. So it's, it's the amount of money the Fed is printing, less the amount of new debt issuance coming out of the treasury. So, right, so when the Fed was doing QE before, if the fiscal authorities were doing nothing and the amount of the debt was essentially staying the same, any buying the Fed did reduced the supply of financial assets and therefore made them more valuable. You know, and that was how QE worked to support the stock market over the past 10 years. But now with, with $4 trillion of new debt coming from the, the Treasury, that's $4 trillion. That's the almost anti-QE. That's the opposite, right? That's $4 trillion in new securities, new supply of secure, securities that all else being equal makes all of those securities less valuable uh, and should pr push the prices of all of them down. So the Fed has to soak up all that $4 trillion of, of new issuance just to have a net neutral liquidity situation. So this is where I think where it's getting really interesting because the Fed expanded its balance sheet by three trillion, you know, in March, April, May, and since then they've done nothing. The balance sheet has been flat. The, tre the Treasury now needs to issue two trillion of new debt before year end. So if the Fed doesn't soak up that two trillion, then that's two trillion of essentially negative QE uh, with with the supply of uh, financial assets growing. So that's almost like you know negative liquidity coming into the market before year end. So I, I think th this is a really important time. You know we're watching the markets and there's lots of things going on, but I think part of it is this market trying to price in: is the Fed going to mop up this this you know this excess these excess securities or are they not? Because if they don't, that ne negative liquidity situation can be very bearish for equities. We have to just insist on more Robinhood traders uh, propping. <laughs> buying it up right <laughs> right i mean my my thought is with if inflation goes rampant like the stock market goes up right because people don't want cash they'll put it anywhere you, you look at 
Venezuela stock market as as a most extreme version of it. So it's it's well, certainly interesting. Yeah, there's times. gradations of that, right? So if interest rates from from whatever zero to five, six, seven, eight percent inflation, that would probably be very bearish for stocks because people would go, wait a second, I can go buy uh, a ten year note or a thirty year bond and get five, six, seven, eight percent risk free. All of a sudden now, if I'm discounting low interest rates for Apple and all these other stocks, now those low interest rates are gone, the valuations decline dramatically. But once you get up into that hyperinflation, you get up in teens inflation and stuff, that, that's why I think you need to pay attention to earnings because that, that hyperinflation will start showing up in earnings. You'll start seeing it in copper prices, you'll see it in commodities markets and you'll see it in earnings. And uh, until you see it in earnings, you're not going to see it in stock prices. I think these people who are saying, you know, that stocks are starting to discount hyperinflation, to me, that's another just irrational justification for for current valuations, because there, I, I believe there would be a period where we would go from zero to three, four, five percent inflation and interest rates. That that stage would be very bearish for equities. If it goes into hyperinflation from that point, that's when people would say, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't want to own anything except you know, real estate, gold, stocks, you know, things that are going to somehow preserve their, their value. But there's an in-between stage there that, that we shouldn't forget about. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And at that point, I mean, it's literally anything but dollars or, or fiat currency. So right. perhaps a good transition into commodities here. I mean, I think, you're pretty bullish on commodities in general for the for the average investor getting exposure to commodities i mean are there certain types of etfs like how how does one get exposure to commodities as a whole yeah well i think you know one of the charts i've been looking at for the last several years and this was related to the gold trade you know from 5 years ago so commodities relative relative to financial assets is the lowest in history. Another way of saying it's financial assets are more overvalued than, than in, in history. So there is an opportunity in commodities for the long time. To me, it's incredibly ironic that we have the most inflationary monetary and fiscal policy in the history of our country. At the same time, we have a Fed who's telling us they're going to, they're hell bent on raising inflation. And what's the most hated asset class on the planet? one of the asset classes that would benefit most from inflation. And to me, that, that, that kind of mixture of, of, of you know, fundamentals and sentiment you know, creates a very interesting opportunity for long-term investors. Now, I don't have a lot of interest in owning commodities directly, but owning commodity-based companies, companies who produce commodities or you know, related to commodities, is a much more interesting idea because those stocks are, you know, if there is a group of value stocks in the U S stock market, it's these companies that are focused on commodities. So what is the most important commodity on the planet? Oil, right? What is another good commodity? What commodity, you know, aside from gold did very, very well from 2001 to 2008, 9, 10, when the dollar tanked, it was the oil price. The oil prices, you know, went went nuts. It went from ten twenty dollars a barrel to hundred plus a barrel. A lot of most of the time, the oil price is just you know inversion of of the dollar. So dollar goes down, oil price goes up. So I do think we're very close to a, if not uh, already seen it, a terrific opportunity in energy. To me, the we're going to look back on this decision that S and P global indices is manage the, the Dow Jones Industrial Average. And they made that choice to kick out ExxonMobil, which has been in there for since you know, the original Dow 30. ExxonMobil is one of the original Dow 30. And you know, because energy was too big of a weighting in the Dow, according to, you know, compared to the S&P 500, and tech was going to be too small after Apple stock split. So let's add Salesforce.com, trading at a 0.5% free cash flow yield and get rid of ExxonMobil, which is paying an 8% dividend yield. To me, we're going to look back at this and go, oh my God, they did the exact opposite. And that's exactly what all investors are doing right now. I want to own no energy. 
and I want to be long, super heavy tech. And I think probably what investors should be doing is the exact opposite of that, super underweighting tech today, overweighting energy, because I do think energy is going to, you know, it's very undervalued right now. It's out of favor. And with the macro dynamics for the dollar and stuff, it could probably be very supportive for oil prices and for these stocks over the next five to 10 years. Okay. So on a longer term basis, I mean, short term momentum traders, like throw it all in Tesla or whatever these people do. Right. But a uh, longer term bearish on the dollar mean and, and, and all of these tech stocks and everything. So, so the, the value play there is more for these oil producing stocks, something like Exxon or the spider XLE, I think. So these might be interesting plays, but with oil, I mean, one of the main headwinds, and I haven't jumped into this that much, would be like renewable energy, right? So this is kind of guessing that we continue the way that we are with a lot of demand for oil. Um, do you think through those as risks as you're kind of putting on these these oil plays? Absolutely. And, and to me, the way you make money in the market, this comes from uh, a terrific book from Howard Marks, The Most Important Thing. Terrific book. You know, the way to make money in the markets is you have to have a non-consensus view about value and you have to be right. And so what is the consensus today? The consensus today is I want to own alternative energy. I want to be ESG. I want to own Tesla. And basically the consensus is that, that alter, these alternative energies are going to dominate and they're going to take over and oil is going to go bye-bye. Oil's just, you know, there's, the demand is going to disappear. That's what I believe is priced into the markets. So the only way, only thing I need to, to make money in energy is that oil doesn't go bye-bye. If oil doesn't go bye-bye, because that's what it's priced, pricing in right now, if oil sticks around for another 10, 20, 30 years as some sort of an energy source, then, then those stocks are, are underpricing that uh, reality. And so to me, that's, that's how I look at it. I mean, it could, be, it could well be true that, you know, and I actually don't doubt it at all, that alternative energy sources are eventually going to, but it's, it's all about the time frame. I think people are pricing in that we're not going to be, five years from now, we're not going to be using oil at all. And that to me is, you know, ridiculous. Uh, we're going to be still using oil. I mean, how do you think people power their Teslas up with, you know, electricity that was generated through natural gas or, you know, some other type of thing? It's still mostly created, you know, by, by those types of sources. And, you know, wind and solar are nowhere close to being able to replace those, those types of energy. Now, nuclear is another interesting option, right? And so that this is another area where, you know, uranium uh, stocks are, you know, been extremely cheap for a long time. I don't own any of them. I'm not betting on, you know, uranium and nuclear, but that's another area where I think if you are an ESG investor and you're betting on renewables, uh, it might be a great time to bet on nuclear because those stocks are, are, I think, still probably very undervalued. And that might be the only bridge between, you know, the true bridge between, you know, fossil fuels and renewables. Yeah, th th that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, and I've heard you talk briefly on it. What are your views on other alternatives outside of these things that we've been talking about? So you only have a finite resources where you can invest your, your investable cash, something like crypto, completely not a store of value, speculative asset. What are your kind of views on that? Yeah, no, I, I do think crypto is, yeah, just a, a tool for speculation. I think it's, I, the reason I don't think it's a store of value is because it is, it is man-made. And if you look at just Bitcoin over the last, I mean, you can talk about crypto. And I, I've talked to some very smart people about this, you know, for the past several years to try and understand crypto. And, you know, for, for a time there, they were constantly coming up with new cryptocurrencies to own, right? First was Bitcoin, then Ethereum, and then, right, you get to Dogecoin and all these kinds of, you know, like crazy things. And to me, that right there is a sign that, okay, well, what if, you know, they create a crypto that's better than Bitcoin, that's better than, you know, and I've, a lot of smart people say Ethereum is, you know, is, is a better option than Bitcoin. And so you know, I've asked smart people and they say, well, I'll just buy all of them, all of the new ones that are, 
even just with Bitcoin forking into different, you know, different slight variations on the original, they're doubling the amount of Bitcoins in existence. Yeah, these Bitcoins are slightly different than these, but that's not a store of value if you can just literally branch off and, and you know, double the supply of something overnight because you have a disagreement in, in how Bitcoin should be, you know, but should be managed. And so you can't do that you know, with a store of value is something that is a finite resource and it's not man-made in my, in my viewpoint. I do think there's just way too much risk in terms of Bitcoin in the fact that it, it you know, I, I think I said in the Macro Voices interview, you know, the, the history of technology is that somebody comes up with something and then somebody else one-ups it, you know, uh, several years later and creates a, a better version of that. And I don't see, you know, why there won't be a better version of Bitcoin, and not just that, why there won't be a, a better version that will actually be endorsed by central banks, and you know, and then controlled by central banks, and managed according to their, you know, their their views on on what a currency should be, and so yeah, I I, I just there are too many too many what ifs there for it to be something, you know, uh, gold's been a store of value for human beings for 5,000 plus years. And, and there's there's nothing to change that that I can see on the horizon. So I'd rather stick with the, the real thing than, you know, Bitcoin was created to try and be a digital gold. You know, I, I, I'd rather stick with the real thing. Nice. Now I've, I've got another podcast coming up that's strictly more Bitcoin bullish, so I won't yeah. dive down that uh, that okay. rabbit hole. I think yeah. I, I think the worry here is that, like you said, there's a central bank digital currency, and they take all of the characteristics of Bitcoin and they push this out, and this the new digital dollar. And I think this is the the inevitability that we're going towards. You know, you can push yeah. monetary policy directly through automatically. You can have right. things that expire, so you have to spend them on certain things, and you, you, this UBI could all be done so much easier. So right. I think that's where we're going. Which you know, Bitcoin could offer some alternative, some opt out to that sort of system, which is interesting to say the least. But yeah, I, I won't go too far down that rabbit hole because well, yeah, that's, the only that's thing a whole I would say that too is that you know the, the gold ownership in in the United States in the past. There's no reason why they couldn't outlaw you know Bitcoin ownership once they create you know a federally approved alternative. You know, and, and so I, I don't know, there's just too many, too many things like that, that make it make it too risky for me. That said, I know a lot of people who've done really, really well, and a lot of smart people that, that are bullish on Bitcoin. So, you know, I've, I, I've been very wrong on things like this before. So I, I, I just think, you know, with, with, for me, I am kind of geared towards far less speculation in, in on things than things that I, I feel like, you know, I just look at all the great traders through history, great investors in history. And the first thing that, you know, play defense first, you know, Ben, ben Graham even wrote about, you know, you want to make sure your principles protected. And how do you do that? Through value investing, you do it through margin of safety. I'm going to buy something far cheaper than it is so that it turns out I'm wrong. And this thing I paid 50 cents for, and I thought it was worth a dollar. It turns out I'm wrong and it's really only worth 50 cents. How much risk did I take? And I don't have a way to apply that framework to Bitcoin, you know, to say, how do I protect my principal? How do I know this thing can't go to, you know, down 90%? And I don't have a way of, of kind of giving myself that type of peace of mind. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, there, there's incredibly smart people on both sides of it, right? And this is why you have a market with buyers and sellers. There's Absolutely. People yeah. that feel very strongly one way and very strongly the other. So there's a buyer for every seller and vice versa. So... I, I get this question a lot from, you know, I think about, I think about somebody like my dad who is, you know, thinking about retiring. He's had money in equity, primarily in equities for the portion of his life, like most Americans own, owns a house. So he has that equity, but like for somebody like him, you know, bonds are not an alternative. It, the 60 portfolio is dead. You know, how do you get in income? But Whenever you're talking to people like this, shorter time frame, need for liquidity, they want some yield. What do you, what do you, talk to them about? Like, how, where's where's the alternatives for something like this? Well, I think you know, there's, there are so many obvious alternatives to to Tina. 
to 100% in the stock market, right? There's so many less obvious alternatives to a 60-40 portfolio. But I think, you know, the one thing, maybe the biggest mistake investors are making today is, you know, focusing on the U.S. equity markets, that diversification is so powerful. And when you look at, you know, I would recommend, I, I recommended it for years, go look at Meb Faber's Global Asset Allocation. And he talks about what, he shows you what a really diversified portfolio looks like. And when you see that, and you see the most aggressive asset allocators on the planet maybe have 25, 30% of their portfolios in U.S. equities, that should be a wake-up call to, to investors because, I, I would, you know, the average U.S. investor probably has 60, 70, 80% of their portfolio in U.S. stocks. And so when you tell somebody that and you go, you know what, you, you are twice as aggressive as the most aggressive asset, asset allocator on the planet. I'm talking about the most successful asset allocator, David Swenson, Yale Endowment, probably, you know, I think typically 30% in U.S. equities. Today, he's closer to 1%, 2% or 0 But for kind of a, for a, a permanent portfolio, you know, he's going to have 30% roughly in, in U.S. stocks. And then you can take those types of permanent portfolios from Ray Dalio, from all these different guys. None of them have anywhere close to 60, 70, 80% in U.S. stocks. And the reason is because you're putting all your eggs in one basket. And yes, that's how Stan Druckenmiller was so successful. He said, I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm going to watch that basket super closely. And if the market starts to roll over, he's going to get, he's not only going to get out of the stock market, he's going to get short. So how many people, you know, these typical American U.S. investors have the ability to trade like Stan Druckenmiller? They just don't. And so there's no reason at all to have uh, as little diversification as they do. So I, I think, you know, when you look at these things and you go, you know, maybe one third of my portfolio in equities is where I should be in terms of volatility and, you know, uh, my, my, my temperament, and my, my risk appetite then maybe 15%, you know, half of that should be in U.S. and half of that should be overseas equities. You know, so maybe you're only 15% in U.S. equities once you start looking at a diversified portfolio. So I think that's the first thing to introduce anybody to is that, you know, this whole idea of you need to put 60, 70, 80% of your money in the U.S. stock market is, you know, is extremely risky in any at, at, at any given time. And it's never been more risky than it is today. So, there are so many other asset classes to own and to build a, a truly diversified portfolio include, you know, means, yeah, reducing a lot of exposure to U.S. equities and increasing it to a lot of these other things we are talking about, gold, foreign equities, uh, bonds, real estate, et cetera. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And then it's, it's actually even more risky for that, right? For the, the average U.S. investor who is receiving a U.S. dollar salary, who owns a U.S. real estate. I mean, you, you are talk about all your eggs in one basket. I mean, it's like working at Enron and getting all of your compensation through Enron stock, right? right? Like those people were decimated. Yeah. So it's the same. Yeah. I've, I've, I have another podcast all about flag theory, which is kind of global diversification, you know, owning property in different countries with exposure to different FX and all of these things. So it's an interesting thought experience, uh, experiment to go through. My, my thought there though, like some of these other guys, they, they have access to private equity and VC and some things that are a little bit more difficult to get exposure to than the average investor, but you still think there's, there's enough options to truly build, you know, a super diversified globally asset allocation with the tools that are out there? I do. I think, you know, the, the, the good thing about this passive bubble is that it's created a bunch of super low cost products that give you access to, you know, there's, there's an index for every country outside the United States. You know, there's, there's, you know, X, you can, you know, buy an X us equity index, you know, the, there's all types of emerging. Some of my favorite, you know, I guess they're not technically passive, but low cost index type of products are the fundamental indexes created by Rob Arnott at Research Affiliates. And it's essentially a way to put together an index portfolio, but instead of weighting by market cap, you're weighting by, by fundamentals. So you're weighting by book value sales, you know, these types of things. So you're not going to be buying the Sun Microsystems, putting, you know, 
a ton of your money into Sun Microsystems at the top, and you're not going to be selling, you know, Exxon Mobil today, you're going to be probably having a, a much bigger helping of Exxon Mobil in that index today because its sales are still really high, and you know you're not going to be buying tons more Apple today because its valuation went up, even though its sales have been flat. So it's a fundamental index to me makes is a brilliant innovation, and I think you know you can buy. Fundamental emerging index, fundamental you know overseas index, fundamental U.S. index, fundamental small cap, and it's basically just I, I believe a much more efficient way of, of building an index. And so, yeah, I think utilizing those types of products, you can get massive diversification, not just uh, outside of the United States, but you can be more well diversified within the U.S. because you're not putting 26% of your money in the fangs. You're put, you're, you, you know, that index, the fundamental index is going to be much more diversified than a market cap weighted, weighted index will be. Awesome. And I'll, I'll definitely link that in the show notes, fundamental index portfolios. I, I haven't looked into those, so I'm excited to yeah. go down that path. So next question was more on following your Twitter and your blog, the breadth of information that you're consuming. So what, what tools do you use to stay on top of things within the financial markets? Because you, you cover a number of different things. Obviously, it's from years of it being in the business, but uh, more for my own learnings. I mean, you, but how do you do this? Yeah, so it's a, it's a good question because I have spent years refining my, my daily routine. So I have uh, a number of blogs that I still follow just through an RSS feed that, you know, I, I find value in. But I think I also use Apple News, you know, that's curated to specific topics that I like. But I think my, the most valuable thing that I've found over the last several years is, you know, I follow, I think, just about 100 um, accounts on Twitter. And these are only people that I, you know, find provide me with terrific value, whether it's charts or articles or whatever. And then I found this app called Nuzzle, N-U-Z-Z-E-L. And Nuzzle takes all of those 100 accounts and it, it uh, will show me the, the articles shared by those 100 accounts and they'll rank them by, you know, popularity. So if three of those people shared the same article, that comes up first. So it'll give me, you know, like, 50 articles uh, a day based on what my network is, is sharing and, and based on popularity. And then even more valuable than that sometimes is it takes those hundred people and their network of people they follow. And so oh, there's man. another, so I can see my, I can see the friends of friends and all the news articles that those people are sharing. So basically Twitter has created a network for me. That's kind of like a news gathering organization. And so when I go to this friends of friends tab on Nuzzle, it shows me this whole, you know, FinTwit network of people that, you know, that I value and, and that they value and the most important things they're reading over the last 24 hours. So that's, that's my wow. secret. Awesome resource. <laughs> no, I haven't heard of that one. So definitely putting that on the list. The, my worry, my biggest worry with Twitter is it, I'm just stuck in my echo chamber. And this just is a, an accelerant for this echo chamber aspect. I mean, it, if, if you look on my Twitter feed, I mean, everybody is short the dollar, super long gold, and they love Bitcoin. Like this, this is, this is the, the area that I play in, right? So I, I always want the differing opinion. Somebody say, no, Bitcoin's dumb. Like they'll just fork it, right? It's not yeah. limited. So well, that's, that's, you know, one of the things I use Twitter for too is for sentiment. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I think, you know, I've been short-term bullish on the dollar and bearish on gold is because I think we did get sentiment got way too far extended and there are way too many dollar shorts right now. So, I, you know, when I say I'm bearish to dollar, I'm talking about in the next several years. But we could have a good short-term dollar rally that kind of coincides with this risk-off period where you get people selling stocks, kind of going to the dollar as a safe haven again over a short period of time. And that's also why oil, you know, and oil stocks are selling off as part of that, that trade also. So, yeah, the short-term dynamics, I, I think Twitter's fantastic for for sentiment also a lot of the stuff i'll tweet you know is not even stuff that i believe a lot of the times it's just quotes that i'll put out there that i find interesting and i want to see people's reactions to them you know when they say hey when people like get super riled up about something i know okay well sentiment's gone pretty extreme to one side or the other on this topic 
So yeah, we saw it, especially when it comes to the dollar, it's fascinating to watch. We had that dollar spike, you know, back in March or whatever, when the stock market tanked and some people just got so bullish, you know, dollars, they were like, here comes the huge dollar blow off, right? right? And yeah, over the last two, three weeks, we've seen people getting, you know, like when people start patting themselves on the back too much for being bearish the dollar, you know, okay, we're, it's, we're time for a counter trend rally at least. So yeah, Twitter is a terrific sentiment tool for, for, it for is. that. It is, but I, I, I just always, you know, is this reality or it's just my tiny little echo chamber? So everybody's bearish on the dollar. Is that actually representative of the greater investor sentiment? I mean, I don't know. Right, right. Well, that's also why I do so much reading too, is because, you know, when you see the mainstream media, you know, start coming in and saying, you know, the dot, the dot. And we, we did see that over the last couple of weeks. We saw a lot of the mainstream media questioning the dollar's reserve currency status. You know, and so mainstream media is, is for me uh, an important sentiment signal too, because the dollar's down, you know, five, six, seven percent, it's going to lose its reserve currency status, right? That's a little panicky. It's got, you know, and, and so I, 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 those are typically marked the short term bottoms. But yeah, it, you're right. I mean, I, it's hard to, for me because everybody I follow on Twitter, I have huge respect for. And so when they, sh you know, are all kind of sharing the same opinion, I'm like, they're probably right. You know, is this a contrarian view? But this is just, I only follow contrarians, you know, like, so it's tough. It's tough. But it, for me, I find much more value in following those people and, and hearing their ideas and input than, than uh, I otherwise would. Nice. So I'll, I'll definitely link your Twitter on in, in the show notes and uh, felderreport.com. But last question, if you could only follow three Twitter accounts and not use a cool tool like Nuzzle, who would you follow and why? Oh, man. Who would I follow? Put those guys on the spot. You know, Jason, Jason Gepfert, uh, sentiment trader, is somebody that I've followed for a long, long time. He does some just brilliant sentiment work. Gosh, who else? Let me just look and see who I'm following here real quick. I got to go back to the people I've started following a long time ago. Helene Meisler also is another one who I think she's just brilliant chartist. She, she's been hand drawing charts for decades and just has her finger on the pulse of the market that, you know, that to me is, is invaluable. And then third, gosh, I probably need to just say my friend, Peter Atwater. Peter is, you know, a professor of socionomics and just his take, he has such a unique take on how things are unfolding in the markets and, and how it relates to sentiment, not just investor sentiment, but, you know, popular sentiment and consumer sentiment and these types of things. He just he has such a unique perspective. He's so underfollowed. I mean, he's one of the most brilliant people I know. So yeah, go follow Peter Atwater. But yeah, those three to me are three of the most valuable that I that I follow. Awesome. I'll, I'll definitely link all of those guys. I'm surprised to see two out of the three as chartists. I mean, coming from my CFA background, I mean, charting is just the voodoo, witchcraft, maybe a like tactical shift, but that, that's that's quite surprising. But I'll definitely- well, Helene, Helene is a pure chartist. I would say Jason is more uh, statistician. He's more just sentiment-related statistics and price-related statistics. I mean, there's so many people that do it now. There's so many imitators, but Jason's been doing it for 20 plus years and he's just, he's got it so dialed into what's valuable information, what's not valuable information. And, and so, yeah, I, I, would, I wouldn't throw him in the charting category so much as this statistics category. Awesome. Well, Jesse, really appreciate you taking all the time today. What can you leave my listeners with? Where do you want to send them to find out more about you and what you're doing? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, um, you probably get a good idea of what I'm thinking about and reading and just from following my Twitter accounts, just at Jesse Felder. I, I basically, you know, I, I told you my routine. Every morning I go through all those things and I, and I pick out the articles that I find that whether it's important information or it's important, you know, sentiment signal through, you know, from several media outlets or certain dynamics going on. I'm trying to track the narratives really that are driving the market and, 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 and what, what stage those narratives are in, in their life cycle, you know, uh, a state, a narrative that's kind of in an early life cycle, something you can trade off of uh, vice versa. If something is getting ready to, you know, uh, 
meaningful to the market, that's that's an important signal too. So yeah, my, my Twitter account might seem like I'm not explicitly saying those things, but I'm sharing those those articles and charts and things because I'm it's it's very highly relevant to a narrative that I'm tracking that I think is important to markets at, at present. So awesome. Well it's definitely a treasure trove of information and highly curated of all the different articles that you're going through. So we all appreciate that, that's for sure. And I'll also link, um, I mean, you have a newsletter that comes out on the weekends at the felderreport.com. Right, yeah, yeah, that's where I take take like five things, you know, that I found during the week and I put them in that free Saturday morning email. So you can just felderreport.com, you can sign up for that and see uh, what five things I thought were most important from from the last week. Awesome. Well, Jesse, really appreciate you coming on. Lots of great information in this. I think my listeners are really going to love it. Awesome. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for the invite. Thank you. There you have it. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast, and I really appreciate it. Thanks again, and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.